This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. If you talk about yourself as a student, what you did when you were in your graduate studies, you create the perception that this is not work experience when it really is. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we tell you why you should stop calling yourself a graduate student. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 176. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good afternoon, Dan. I feel like we have been recording late at night the last few episodes, but here we are, three o'clock in the afternoon. It is amazing to be this early. Uh, we can start off with our midday drinking, so that's kind of a benefit. Well, this is a great midday drink, Dan, and also great for this increasingly warm summer weather. It is pretty warm down there in North Carolina, right? Yeah, we were predicted to get close to 100, and so uh, I threw this this beer in the fridge. I don't know if you have this, Josh. I have one shelf where the air comes through, and so things get cold really fast and really cold, and that's where this beer has been living. So today we are sampling the Narragansett Dell's Shandy. I think we've had a Shandy before, haven't we? I think we did have a Shandy a few years ago, and just as a reminder to our listeners, a shandy is a beer that is mixed with some kind of fruit juice, uh, like a lemonade, an orange juice, an apple juice, a cider. So in this case, lemon. And so this is a very lemony drink. And according to Narragansett's website, this Rhode Island beer is America's number one lemon shandy, according to Beer Advocate. I in no way fact check that, but according to the good folks at Nagaranset, this is the number one lemon shandy. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Story checks out, yeah. And this may be our first Rhode Island beer. I'll have to check the map. Um, I think it is a interesting... I mean, it tastes exactly like it sounds. It tastes like lemonade mixed with beer. I think but it's not okay. In a, not in a bad way. When you say no, it no, that not way, in a bad way, it sounds gross. But actually, it's not too bad. Look, I put lime in my Corona. So this is that times about 50, I'd say. I would say I might prefer this to just lemonade. Oh, interesting. You're going to get much more dehydrated on this, but it's not as sweet. It's not as sweet. I think that's my problem with especially store-bought lemonade. Way too sweet. I was going to say, what kind of lemonade are you making? What is what is your <laughs> lemonade recipe, Josh? Is it not lemons, sugar, and water? Are you well, uh, the Country Time fan? I, I prefer to make my own lemonade, but who has time for that? Exactly. I think the only thing I've had that, that comes close to this, Dan, is one time several years ago, I was at an Applebee's. This might have been the last time I was at an Applebee's stand, and I had the the beer mixed with the margarita. Oh, that is interesting. Was it bad? <laughs> yes. <laughs> did it have tequila in the margarita too or I not? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I think it did. I think my understanding is it was uh, half margarita and half uh, Bud Light. So okay. Mistakes were made, Josh. <laughs> yeah, we, we look back on these times in our life where – we were at a crossroads and we chose the wrong path. That that was one of them. But this this Nagaranset, I can recommend this without a doubt. And I think this is distributed fairly widely. So it has a very distinctive green and yellow can with white stripes. Um, so I would recommend this for a sum, a warm summer day, going to a summertime party. Two thumbs up. All right, Josh. Well, with that. You know, what would not be a bad decision in life would be to create an individual development plan. And if you need help with that, Promega has uh, some resources for you if you have a career goal in mind, but you want to make sure that you and your PI are on the same page. What you do is create an individual development plan. It ties the employee's responsibilities to learning objectives and professional growth. If you want to learn how to write one, visit promega.com slash hello IDP. All right, Dan. Let's move on to our topic of the week. All right, Dan, you did a really cool interview this week. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this week I talked with Elena Talboy, who 
uh, has recently written a book, very recently, and it's called What I Wish I Knew, A Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies. And Josh, I think if, if you wanted to subtitle our whole podcast, it would be What I Wish I Knew. So I, I thought, what a great chance to talk with somebody who has looked back over uh, not only graduate training, but also a transition to a career in industry and figure out what can we learn from that? And, and how is she helping students make that transition? Yeah, lots of great advice here and lots of experiences that I think are going to be helpful to a lot of our listeners. So I got a lot out of this and hopefully they will too. So why don't we go ahead and jump into your conversation with Elena. Dr. Elena Talvoy, welcome to Hello PhD. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm excited to talk to you. We're going to talk about your new book. I think it's new, right? It is new. It just came out in March of 2022. Okay, very new. So the book is titled What I Wish I Knew, A Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies. And there's a lot packed into that title. But I'm hoping you can start with a little bit of your story and what led you to write a book about thriving in graduate studies. Yeah, absolutely. So I finished my PhD back in 2019. And had the very interesting choice, actually, of choosing to continue with a tenure track position I was offered or take a position at Microsoft. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. And uh, both offers had their pros and cons. But ultimately, I had to make the choice not just for me, but for my family. And so I wanted to find a position that would really support and be in an area where my son could get the services that he needs because he's a special needs student. And I could get the services I need because I have some of my own health issues to deal with. And so ultimately, I ended up choosing the industry job. And turning down the tenure track faculty position. I know. I know. I turned down the academic dream job is how it's referred to. But yeah, there was just, there was a lot of pieces of having an industry job that just don't happen with academic jobs. And ultimately for my family, this was the best decision. Well, this is great because you, you stood at that crossroads and you've chosen one path. I guess you can't know what yep. would have happened down that other path, but you can make some good guesses right. based on observation. So right. you're in a great position to talk about that transition to industry, and we will get there. But yes. you also do something that I think is really unique and I want to hear more about, which is mm-hmm. you spend time working with current students in what, what you call coffee chats. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So that's the second part of how I actually ended up here is even though I went to industry, I still feel very connected to the academic community. I am active on academic Twitter. I have a LinkedIn presence and I host those coffee chats that you mentioned. And part of the reason I do that is in academia, we have this service component that's built into how we structure our time and energies. And the service component is really about giving back to that larger community in ways that um, will help other people. And so my coffee chats, (laughs) which seems very uh, simplistic, is actually how I do that. So since I switched to industry, I have a bit more flexibility thanks to work-life balance. And I have actually a a lot more free time than I did (laughs) in academia. So I'm able to dedicate several hours on Fridays to activities like this and to these coffee chats. And so in these coffee chats, people from academia, where they're currently enrolled, thinking about enrolling, just finished their PhD, any kind of conversation that comes from an academic background, they are free to come and talk to me, get any advice that I could possibly give, and in my way, help them make their next decision just by providing information in a kind of anonymous-ish hands-off, not involved in academia directly sounding board. And so those conversations are what culminated in this first title. And how long have you been doing that? Since, oh goodness, a few years now. (laughs) It's safe to say you've talked to hundreds of students? Hundreds of students easily, yeah. So I typically host between three and five sessions every Friday. They're between 15 and 30 minutes, depending on how long each person wants to talk. And I've been doing that almost every Friday since 22, 
2020. <laughs> so two years worth of these conversations. It's, it's such a great idea. And I had never considered it before. Occasionally, I'll get somebody that reaches out on LinkedIn and says, I'd like to do an informational interview. And as somebody mm-hmm. who benefited from those, I will take the time and do them. But the idea of just opening up that block of time and with Zoom, everybody has Zoom or whatever. Everybody has chat Zoom. You yep. prefer. Um, Everyone on LinkedIn has Calendly. Okay. Know? Yeah, I just love that. And so, for any listeners who are maybe past that graduate training phase, or maybe you're in graduate school and and you want to help undergrads or or postbacs or people who are rising in that space, I think this is an awesome way to give back. I just love that you're doing it. Thank you. And what a great way to gather material for a book to understand Which the zeitgeist of graduate training. <laughs> Yeah, this is not what I I set out to do. It happened a bit more naturally and I think came together a lot faster than I expected just because I am a scientist. I am a meticulous note taker. And so I noticed in your book every single (laughs) entire chapter about note taking. But you know, every single session I had, I would just jot down a few thoughts at the end of these meetings and all of a sudden I'm looking at pages and pages of notes and it's like, oh, there's themes here and maybe I could package this in a way that won't require one-on-ones with me, but you know, gives people a resource that they can still go and get the experiences if they were talking to me. That's awesome. So you know, we are not going to be able to cover every topic that you cover in the book. I don't think we're going to get to talk about note taking, although it was it's fascinating to me. I did not know there were four types of note taking, let alone Oh, uh, there's like twelve. There's okay. <laughs> what you described for in the book. So we will hit a few of the the highlights that stood out to me. I encourage people to get the book. We'll tell them where to get it toward the end. But you've got the book broken into three sections. And the first Mm -hmm. one is really what you call setting up for success. It's about that those first few years of, of being enrolled in a graduate program. And in that first section, you address new students and helping them make the transition about what they know from undergrad and what the PhD Mm -hmm. program will be like. And I I want you to talk a little bit about some of the common misconceptions that students have about grad school and what it means to be a, quote, graduate student. Yep. Yes. So there there are two major misconceptions that I'll address here. One is that graduate school is just more schooling. It's school. Therefore, I'm going to more school. Right, right. And that's that's honestly, uh, most of the people who end up in a PhD are the cream of the crop in their undergraduate class. They are intelligent and bold and they engage in so many different things that help just propel their career forward. And so they come into graduate studies thinking, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have more schooling. And yeah, there's a little bit more coursework, but ultimately it's a very different level of education. So it's no longer, you know, just building out a breadth of study. You are going to deep dive into a very niche specific topic and you are going to develop a very deep understanding of this area while also continuing to expand your breadth of experience. And then on top of that, you're no longer just a student. You are also an educator. You know, you're going to be teaching courses probably, or you might have a research stipend where you're engaging in research activities. You're working in a lab, you know, seven, eight hours a day. Other people work in administrative roles, you know, learning business skills that go hand in hand with their MBA or things like that. So there's a whole bunch of hats that people take on as a graduate, quote unquote, student, (laughs) That really changes their experience from, you know, that education they had in undergraduates to a career transition as a graduate. So it's a very big shift. Yeah, I think there, there's a bit of an identity crisis for many students who come in and the things that made you good at schooling mm-hmm. will not necessarily help you in graduate school. And so... right. What does it mean for a student to take on that other identity of a career? Why should they drop this concept of, I am just a student and this is just more school? How does that hold them back? So this, so this comes in, in two things. One of them is your work-life balance while being a graduate student. And the second piece is when you're ready to make that jump after graduation to your next role. And so... 
I'll break it into those two sections here. So the first part being really incredibly that work-life balance. And this affects everything from how well you retain information to your mental health to even your physical health gets tied into this. Because there's this idea that graduate students have to spend 80 hours every week doing all of this work and engaging in all of these activities. And I actually include a chart in the book that says like how many hours you spend working on each of these different things you run out of time so fast. And so how could you possibly get everything done if you're not working 80 hours a week? But the reality is this is still a job. You are being paid to deepen your understanding, to help educate the next wave of people that come after you and to make contributions to the scientific or scholarly world that you are becoming an expert in. And so you can very easily lose yourself working 80 hours a week, but it's going to be at the expense of everything else in your life. And so when you think about graduate studies as a job instead that helps you put guardrails on how much time and energy you are sinking into these different pieces, which will help enable the rest of your life and actually does help you learn and retain information a lot better. Okay, so that's the first big part of it. And that is so good because, and that helps me understand, it's the belief that this is a separate idea, this graduate school realm, this mystical realm where you have to work 80 hours a week or you're in trouble. Whereas if you believed it was a right. job, you would say to yourself, is this a, a reasonable way to do a job? <laughs> no, it wouldn't. Right. No, it wouldn't. And you would never go to an employer who paid you 20 hours a week. And they said, yeah, we're paying you 20 hours a week, but we expect you to work 80 hours a week. You would look at them like they were nuts. But in know? grad school, you would, you would say, oh, that's normal. Exactly, exactly. So if you put this constraint and you shift your thinking about it not being more schooling, it's not a, it might be a calling if you want to call it that, but it's still just a job. And it is a job you are paid to do. So you need to have constraints around it. That's great. And tell us the second thing. I interrupted you. Yeah, no worries. So the second piece of this. So what I see when people start to make that transition from their graduate studies, they've finished their PhD or they decided not to. You know, there's that choice too, or they had some reason where they didn't want to finish it, but they're on the job market. And now they want to start talking to employers um, about their next career role. And here's the thing. If you're in a PhD program, you have anywhere from five to eight years of your research and scholarly, and if you're like me, your scientific expertise that you've been building. That is five to eight years of experience and work history where you've been doing the activities that you are going to be hired to do in an industry somewhere else. And so if you talk about yourself as a student, what you did when you were in your graduate studies, what you did at you know these different places, you create the perception that you were not, that this is not work experience. When it in fact really is, you know, those eight years of research that I did is research experience. Just because I was a graduate student at the time doesn't mean I wasn't a researcher at the time. And so you are immediately undercutting yourself and selling yourself as having less experience than you really do. When you talk about it as a job, when I was a researcher, when I was an educator, this now becomes solid work history that you can lean on when you're talking about getting your next position. So good. We are downplaying our own skills and experience by believing this notion that we were just, quote unquote, a grad student. Exactly. And in fact, we were teaching classes. We were conducting a, an independent research program. We were mm -hmm. project managing. We were doing all of these things that <laughs> yes. are part of the training, but also yep. that training was real world experience. Exactly. And I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, graduate students often believe that they don't get the training that they need to make the jump to an industry position. And I say industry is like a catch-all. It could be government, nonprofit, anything literally outside the small bubble of academia. There's a big wide job world out there. So graduate students think that they don't have the training to make these jumps to this larger job field. But really the piece that they're missing is that language component. They have the training. They have the skills and the expertise. They just don't know the language that employers use to say these 
these are the skills that they need. And so that's really what I hope this book accomplishes is it helps them translate, at least in the third part, translate those very valuable skills into words the industry leaders want to hear. Well, and let's go there a minute. We're going to jump around a little bit in the book. And I think that's okay, yep. because like you said, it is a part of a process. But in in the section on advancing to industry, you talk about how the majority of PhD programs will not directly prepare you for the job market outside academia. And right. tell me about that. You know, you just got done saying, we have these skills, we are trained to be educators and researchers. But at the same time, we're not being directly prepared for that job market. How do those two things line up? Right. So often the training that we get towards the end of our PhD is how to pull together those portfolios that we need to apply to academic positions. But that's only, again, one small piece of the very large job landscape that is available to PhD students. What the problem is, is that when we think about CVs and curriculum vitaes, it is a catch-all of everything we have accomplished through the duration of our studies and our time in academia. And it really is a lovely document. It is very self-affirming to see like, these are all the things I've done. Isn't that so cool? And, you know, it, it's great. It's great. The problem is, it is what I call a backward-facing document. It doesn't translate to what industry leaders want to see, which is, yeah, you did all this stuff, but what are you going to do for my company? And that's really the translation piece that you got to think about when you first start to consider the jump from academia to another industry. And so, one, your CV is probably going to be multiple pages long. And again, Lovely. A few but, seconds, a hiring manager will look at your CV. I mean, they won't look at your CV. Don't submit it. They to won't industry. look at your CV. <laughs> exactly right. So you need a one to two page resume, which is not the same thing as a CV. And this is something that is kind of seemed to be common knowledge, but but it but it's not <laughs> typically common knowledge. What you have to do is take that lovely CV, condense it down to one to two pages of really succinct and well-defined information that is forward-facing, not backward-facing. And when I say forward-facing, I mean things, it, it shows employers what you are bringing to the company. And this is where those action words really come in handy that I talk about. Use verbs to describe what you did because those verbs can also be repeated again in the future. Okay, so you're talking about things like I designed and I executed quantitative and mixed methods research studies. I developed extensive learning materials, engaged students, and evaluated competency through all of these different things. And so those action words, they still say what I did, but they're repeatable and they show the employer, this is what I'm bringing to your organization. And in bold type, <laughs> and I feel like we need to clap between each word, like on Twitter, at no point in your resume should you refer to should yourself you as a grad student. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. You should never refer to yourself as a graduate student because, again, you're just undercutting your own experience and value that you bring to a future employer. Okay, well, thank you for that and, and for making that distinction. Let's step back. We were originally talking about the misconceptions that new graduate students have about how this is more schooling. I think you've helped us understand that. But you also take a little bit of time to talk through some of the, not just mental health challenges, but the learning challenges that will happen. And you talk a little bit about cognitive load and learning. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought this was mm -hmm. compelling and a, a great framing. I, I was hoping you could describe that for us. Right. So this is uh, a little bit of my <laughs> favorite area because I am a cognitive psychologist. And Perfect. So, yeah. So this is something that I look at is cognitive load, which is how much pressure your brain is under and how much information you can handle and tolerate at any given time. And so... With graduate students, we have all of these pulling and conflicting priorities that we need to manage in ways to ensure that we're still leaving room in our, in our brain to process the information we're becoming an expert in. And so I talk about the three different types of cognitive load, which is the germane or generative load, the extraneous load, and the intrinsic load. And really, we only have control 
over one and a half of these. (laughs) So if you think of the brain as a beaker or a glass, there's only so much liquid that that glass can hold. Your brain is the exact same way. And so if you think about all the information that you're trying to understand, there are different components to it that tap out different mental resources in your brain. So the intrinsic load of learning something new is the amount of cognitive resources you actually need to learn that information. And so if I'm teaching you three types of cognitive load, you are trying to learn that's the intrinsic thing you're trying to learn. Okay. It's just holding those three facts in my mind would be the intrinsic load. Yes, that's correct. But there is other information that gets attached to that called extraneous load. And so this is how is that message packaged? What kind of conflicting information is being presented with it? Is there anything else drawing my attention away? And for current market is things like social media, technology, how many animations are on the PowerPoint slides, <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of things that attach to that extraneous load or the extra load that gets tied to what you're actually trying to learn. And this can change whether I'm sitting in a lecture or if I'm trying to read a research article or I'm talking with my PI. Those are all yep. attempts to learn and the mm-hmm. extraneous loads are different in each of those cases. The person in front of me could be perusing Facebook and I'm kind of like half watching that or, you know, my phone keeps buzzing in my pocket, whatever it is. It's changing all the time. It is. It is changing all the time. Notifications. I get work notifications constantly. I get phone notifications constantly. And those are always, they're designed to immediately pull your attention. You know, we had talked about the ethics of technology. This is one of those things is that how much of the technology we're using is good for us and how much of it is designed to increase uh, usage in monetary ways. So my brain beaker is starting to fill up. What's left? Yes. So what's left is your germane or generative space left in your brain. And this is actually where you uh, organize and integrate the new material with existing knowledge. So you know how they say you learn better when you attach new information to information you already have an understanding of. That is how you really develop that breadth and depth of understanding because you're attaching it to something you already know. You're just adding little pieces in and making more connections and really strengthening how that information relates together in your brain. But if your glass is full of extraneous information and Facebook and social media and all these things, there's really only like a sliver of a line left for that germane load. And that's really where as PhDs, we tend to spend most of our time trying to develop our expertise. So you have the inherent complexity of the material. You have all the other stuff trying to pull your attention away. And then you have that tiny sliver where you actually want to exist developing that domain knowledge. And, and that's where so, ideas come from, right? This is where, where I see a connection in what I just read in this research article with something maybe I learned in class or talked to my PI about. And then I say, mm-hmm. oh, wouldn't it be interesting to ask the question about how these two things interact? And then I get an experiment out of it and then I get a paper out of it and then I graduate. So if I am constantly filling my beaker with (laughs) things that don't need to be in there, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm really missing out on those future insights. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, we say mind the gap, you know, this is every paper that we write as an academic is trying to fill a gap. If you don't have time to identify gaps, you don't have mental resources left to identify those gaps, you're you're not going to make as much progression as you would. And we talked about in 80-hour work week, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> that doesn't seem like it leaves a lot of space in the beaker. And so what should a person listening be doing to make sure they have that space so that they can have those ideas and those connections? So the way I talk about it in the book is I have what I call job rules. And these are not not strict per se, but they're pretty 
good rules for me to make sure I leave room in my life for those things. And so these are ways for me to compartmentalize the hours of my day that are going to be dedicated specifically to my work or my job, which in this particular situation was my PhD. And so the first thing was create a work schedule and stick. I don't work 80 hours a week. I have a family. (laughs) I have a life. I have other things I want to do. I'm not spending 80 hours, um, especially for a job I'm only get paid 20 hours a week for. So I am like very explicit about that. So first things first, create a work schedule and stick to it. The second thing is, again, treat this as your career. You know, this is the beginning of your career. You really want to prioritize what are you going to be spending your time and effort on during your job? Do you want to be that educator? Do you want to be a scholar? Do you want to be a little bit of everything? Because you can totally do that. Figure out what you want to prioritize and then build your work schedule around that. So if I wanted to teach... Primarily, my mm-hmm. work schedule might look very different if I wanted to be mm-hmm. a researcher or if I wanted to be a public relations person or and whatever the alternatives are. Exactly right. Exactly right. So you can set up your PhD. You still have to meet your program milestones, obviously, but often you'll have the ability to go and take workshops to become a better educator. Or maybe you want to go attend a research boot camp, and that's where you want to spend your time and effort. You can really pick and choose those secondary activities that go along with your core priorities to build out the career path that you want to go after. The third part is managing your learning. So all that cognitive load, manage your distractions. I say work when you work. So that means if you're at the lab or you're working on a paper or something like that, put the phone away, turn off your notifications, do your job when you need to do your job. And that goes back to sticking to that work schedule as well. All right. The fourth rule that I talk about is try to play every day. And this one is going to feel very counterintuitive. (laughs) And I'm going to talk through this for just a moment. I'm too busy. I'm too busy to play. I don't have time for it. Too busy to play. Yep, I know. And this is part of the problem is you become so busy, you are already stressing that cognitive load that you have. And so if you're not taking time off, you're not taking breaks, you're not taking moments to recharge yourself, not just mentally, but physically, when you can. This is really going to hurt you in the long run. And it's going to contribute to a lot of other problems that you'll face as you go forward. And so try to take just a few moments every day. Go for a walk. Do five minutes without electronics. I make the joke of five minutes of the day star. So go spend five minutes in sunlight. You know, these kinds of things. And, And five minutes is not a big commitment, I don't think. But you think there are benefits to this. There are. So I personally struggle with, I'm not good at putting like 30 minutes of exercise on my calendar every day. I I just don't. (laughs) You and most of the planet. Right. But what I can do is when my son gets on the bus for school in the morning, I can do a quick two minute walk around my block. And that is just enough physical activity that's no cell phone. There are trees. There's a little bit of sunlight, you know, some days because I'm in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And On good days. There's a little bit of everything kind of packaged together. And it's a very, very short two to three minutes. And then by the time I get to my desk, I'm like refreshed and ready to go and tackle what my next big thing is. Yeah, that's great. The, the alternative that I think most people do is you wake up and your phone immediately comes out and that sets the rest of your schedule, <laughs> right? So, so the whole day you right? are, you're, you're immediately waking into this world of whatever happens to be in the news or on Instagram and just making that space <laughs> to let your brain rest a little bit, decrease the cognitive load, put you yep. in a much better place for learning. I'd give you a challenge is if you're one of those people that wakes up and the first thing you do is look at your phone just for one week, don't look at your phone for the first 15 minutes of being awake. See if you can get through a week, even if you can get through a day or two and see if there's any difference that you're noticing. That's great. I think it's a good challenge. You have to wait for your Wordle till after coffee, I guess. Exactly. Which will probably solve it faster. (laughs) So, so that's cognitive load and how it impacts, but you don't Mm -hmm. stop with those aspects of mental health. You, you devote a whole chapter to it. And I was hoping you could talk about, 
that aspect. You say that your mental health will take a few hits during graduate school. As much as I mm-hmm. wish the system were different, I am compelled to warn you that graduate studies can be and often are brutal to go through. This sounds like speaking from experience a little bit and probably from the people you've talked uh, Yeah, that is... There's a bit of personal experience there, and there's a lot of conversations um, behind that. And actually, this is something that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Fuller did a critical evaluation on this book for me. And she put a comment on this page that was like, this could be even more explicit. (laughs) Like, you are going to go through this. So thanks to her for helping me make this like really clear that you will go through some stuff in graduate studies. Do you find that the students you talk to are are unprepared for this? They don't know it's coming? I I think so. And I think part of the problem, again, harkens right back to that idea of this is your job. But we get the idea of an advanced degree conflated with what we are meant to do in life, that we are pursuing something bigger than ourselves, that we're going to be contributing to something that's going to last in perpetuity. You know, these are these are big emotions and I think sometimes we forget that we are just people, we're all just individuals and that when we think about this as a job and I know I, I'm repeating myself over and over again, it takes some of that pressure off of us that we don't have to be all of these great, amazing things all of the time. And I think this is where I really struggled when I was in my PhD is I wanted to be a great scientist. I wanted to be a great educator. I I suck at public speaking and it has taken me so long to get to the point where I can even have these conversations. But I wanted to educate people. I want to teach people about numbers and like I'm a stats geek. I want to help people understand it. I love those light bulb moments when someone finally understands what a p-value actually means, you know, like these are things that I love. But I pushed myself so much to be the best educator possible and be the best scientist possible and be the best mom at the same time and, and, and all of these things. And we don't have to do that. And I think that's what I really want people to understand is that you don't, you are the best. You are in that top 1% of education and advanced degree is a very small percentage of people. You already proved yourself so you can Take it easy a little bit on yourself. Slow it down a bit. I, you had a piece of advice. You know, you talk about the resources that are available to students. I don't think everybody knows about these resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about how to find campus health, mental health services. And you said mm-hmm. something that really struck me, which was not only to use those services, the maybe the mental health services, but if you go to schedule an appointment, and even if it's a few months in the future, make the appointment. And... Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, that piece really stood out to me. Yeah. So one of the problems, this is from speaking from experience in the U.S., this is going to be different for people in other countries. But in the U.S., we have a complicated relationship with health care services and how those services get paid. <laughs> Very delicately put. <laughs> Yep. So often what you'll find is that mental train wreck would have been another way of describing it. (laughs) Dumpster fire, something like that. Dumpster fire is a good one. Sorry, I interrupted you again. (laughs) No, you're great. So this relationship creates a, a bit of a hierarchy in the healthcare services that we have access to with mental health services being kind of on the lower rung. So because it is really hard to get access to, you might find an appointment, the earliest available appointment is three months out. And you might be thinking like, oh, I'm going to be better in three months. It'll be totally fine. You know what? Just make the appointment and stick to it because a lot can happen in three months. You might have an experiment running. And I speak as you know, person who runs experiments a lot that I start this experiment, it's going great, it's going great, it's going great, and boom, all of a sudden there's something wrong and I have to scrap the entire project. I'm not going to know that right at this moment. I'm going to find that out three months from now when I'm in the middle of data collection. Yep, exactly. So if I had canceled that appointment, I wouldn't have someone to go talk to when that happens. And this is a little bit of future forecasting on our part is that we don't know what's going to happen in three months. So 
even if nothing bad happens, you still have the appointment there to set up services and get a relationship and a rapport going. And if something bad does happen, oh, look, you have a, an appointment there to talk and build a relationship and work through those issues. That makes so much sense. You spend a little bit of time on imposter syndrome, which I think hopefully listeners are familiar with. We've talked about it at length because it is so um, pervasive and so common. Mm -hmm. But you had a piece of advice, and I think you're doing this, which is to mentor others as a way to combat Mm -hmm. that. I really thought that was clever, a, a way of both giving back and seeing this new person coming up and how much you have actually learned in this amount of time. Yep. So the people who've worked with me know I am a huge fan of double dipping where possible. And so any activity that you're engaging, try to have two or three uses for it if you can. Mentorship happens to be one of those that's like really great for multiple things. So just like you said, one, it helps you see how you're doing compared to someone who is in a position you were in five years ago. And so if you are in the last year of your PhD and you talk to first year incoming people, you're like, oh, my sweet summer child, you know, there's a lot you're in for (laughs) because you have the wisdom and experience now to talk about those things. Um, But if you suffer from any form of imposterism or feel like you don't belong or that you're not what is expected in that default position, this might be harder for you to see without some kind of external impetus. And so this is where mentoring becomes really beneficial because not only is the new person coming in, getting the warnings and advice that you wish you had, you then get to reflect back on where you were in their position five, six years ago and go, oh no, I really have grown and learned and I am a really awesomely developed scholar or researcher now. I think the barrier here is that the imposterism makes you believe that you have nothing to give, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I wonder how we get over that mental blockade of saying, well, maybe I don't have to give anything. I can just be a sounding board for this other person. Or I just want to have a relationship that is supportive rather than mm-hmm. as if I am, you know, from on high telling the student how to live their life. Right. I hear that so much from people that they don't think they have anything to give back, but every person is so unique and they come from their own background and mixture of experiences and jobs and education. And it's, it's different for every individual. And so every individual has a story that they can offer a perspective that they don't share or a perspective that they do share you know, and so this idea that we don't have anything to give back because, oh, we're just a third year student or, oh, we're only two years into the program. What could I possibly share? You have really compelling and interesting stories and people do want to hear those. How do you find mentees? Uh, let's say you're a graduate student and you say to yourself, this does sound like, you know, I would like to help the next group along. Mm-hmm. You don't stand by the elevator and say, hello, I'm a mentor. Would you like to be mentored? <laughs> how, do you, yeah. how do you get into those relationships? I mean, you've got coffee um, chat. You, you have a, a space on your website where people can sign up. But if I'm a student, how do I work that out? So you could, there's a, actually a number of things you could do. There's, um, so I have an entire chapter about networking and how to build your network and how to reach out and talk to people. And that is really a, uh, Uh, a gateway drug, I guess, (laughs) to being a mentor is building your network. So my coffee chat started because I had people reaching out to me on LinkedIn that was like, hey, I saw you had a PhD and you work at Microsoft. Like, that's really cool. Can we talk about it? It's like, oh, yeah, like, let's talk about it. Come on. And that's how that idea started was just, you know, I have an interesting work experience that people wanted to learn about. And so that was how I got into it. Same thing could be said for the people that I have had my own coffee chats where I've reached out and had what you call informational interviews with is I've talked to people who have a PhD and they are working on an AI ethics council. And like, that is really cool. How did you get there? Let's talk about it. And I find something interesting that I wanted to hear about from them. And so there's that networking 
is really your foundation for getting into mentoring and reaching out and talking with people. The other part is conferences. You know, most of us have to go to conferences. We have to go talk to people. There's usually mentee mentor events. And as a graduate student, you can sign up to be the mentee or the mentor, you know, so there's that option. Yep. I missed that section of the (laughs) the conference, I guess. This might be uh, conference dependent, but usually I've I've attended a wide array of conferences across the psychological sciences and the computer sciences, and usually there are mentor events there. You might just need to dig into that. Yeah, for a little me, bit. they probably just scheduled an intervention. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure you want to be doing this? No, I'm not sure. Thank you for asking. All right, one last one, and then we we can move. So if If a student doesn't have an opportunity to go to conferencing events or they don't want to have an online presence, because that is always an option, um, you know, what you can do is work with your local, in your local department. So your department, you are a graduate student, there are probably going to be cohorts coming in after you. And most programs have a new cohort onboarding, or they might have a mentor buddy program set up. But this is something you can go talk to your program advisor or the chair of your department and ask them how you can get involved and get some experience mentoring those who come after you. That's great. And I think... That's, an, that's enough ideas for somebody who maybe wants to pursue this. They can pick a few of those to start on. One last thing that I think we could spend an entire podcast on, but I want to <laughs> squeeze in here because I think it's so true. You say, comparison is the thief of joy. And you quote, the comparison is the thief of joy. And I had this experience. I would look around the department and I would see students who came in after me who were finishing before me. I mm-hmm. saw people getting research papers in better journals than I was getting research papers in. I saw yep. people getting better grades than I got. Yep. Every one of those comparisons made me sad. And yep. I wonder how can we avoid that hit to our mental health? Yep, that is... <laughs> that is one that I have no finesse for. Literally just brute force. <laughs> There's no trick Straight here. Up brute force. There's no trick here. You just need to literally stop yourself from doing it. And that is such a statement that I don't even, I don't know if that's possible for some people. But for me, I literally just had to force myself to not make those comparisons. And the way I did that was I am, um, like I said, I'm obsessive note taker. <laughs> So I have a running journal of things that I have accomplished throughout the day, the week, the month, depending on how detailed I want to get. But it documents literally the positive and the negative and the neutral of things that I accomplished or did not accomplish in that time frame. And so it really forced me to reflect on myself and how I was doing individually And made me think about the work that I had done. Because some of it isn't documented as a win. You know, we don't often think about, you know, as an edge, I'm going to use an educator example here. When I'm teaching a class, I have two or three students I know are really struggling with the concepts. And all of a sudden, I see them really understand the point and really figure out like, oh, this is what this actually means. And that to me is a huge win. It's amazing. We don't normally document those things. We don't write it down. And so it's very easy to forget those because again, that cognitive load draws so much. There's only so much information we can take in. So by documenting those things that we don't typically remember that are wins helps us see like, oh, we actually are doing really well. Okay. And it helps balance out all the negatives that we do encounter in graduate school because there's going to be a lot of those too. So, in my mind, it creates a more balanced view of how we personally are doing. And then at the same time, helps us realize when we are looking at other people, other people tend to present the best parts of themselves. They put the good parts forward. We share news that we are really happy about. We share when we have publications. We call it Instagram. Exactly. We don't often share the bad things that have happened or like, 
I had a really crappy student evaluation. We don't talk about those normally. You know, we tend to downplay or dismiss them or not share them with the larger group. And so having this documentation of ourselves helps us see ourselves in a more balanced way. I think it also reminds us that people don't present all of themselves to everyone all the time. Such good advice. So hard to put in practice, but but the writing down is easy, right? I can do that on a daily or weekly basis. Won't take very much mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. it's not going to feel important in that moment. But a few weeks later or a few months later, when you have forgotten the the light going on in that student's eyes as they understand this concept, this will yeah. draw you back to those wins. And I, I think it's uh, wonderful. Elena, we have scratched the surface and we are pretty far into this interview. So I want you to promise me that you'll, you'll come back on the show and we can talk about some of the other sections in this book, things about how to become an educator. I think it's something we mm-hmm. haven't talked about very much. Building your research portfolio, some of these ideas about note-taking, what it means to leave <laughs> academia, what it means to leave your PhD program if you have to. You have advice on mm-hmm. all these things. I want to be able to talk about them, but I want to give them the time and space they deserve. So will you agree to come back? Absolutely. I would come back again. Now it's on the record. Fantastic. Tell everybody (laughs) where they can find you online and where they can find your book. So you can find me online at my website at elenatalboy.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter at Statistress. And I am happy to keep having my coffee chats every Friday. So feel free to sign up when you see a session become available. And again, that is A-L-A-I-N-A. T-A-L-B-O-Y. And I'll put a link in the show notes so that people can get to it easier. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Dan, that was really great. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed that conversation. I think Elena and us are on the same page on a lot of these issues. Yeah, some of those things really resonated with what we talked about, uh, some of your, your time management tips, Josh. And so I thought you'd be vindicated to know that you're not the only person who believes work at work and uh, do some planning in advance and get through that work much faster so you have time to do the other things. I think you talked about that, Josh. Having time for hobbies is actually good for you, and she explains why. Yeah, I thought it was just great timing, and, and clearly we planned it that way. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> to have this interview right after uh, our last show. And and actually, this brings up, if you got a lot out of what Elena had to say, and you know you were listening to this interview and thought, you know what, I really should put some boundaries in place around the number of hours I work, but I just don't know how to get there. You know, I feel like I'm working too much, I'm working too inefficiently, but I, I just have so much to do and I'm just trying to get out of here. How do I do this? then I think it would be really great to go back if you haven't listened yet to the last episode, because I think some of those tips might help you get to where um, this place Elena is talking about here, where really the amount of work you're doing is sort of commensurate with what you're being compensated for, and also just a realistic balance between your work and your life. Yeah, I like that she tied it not just to, I want to be less stressed, which is important, but she tied it to, I will do better work when I'm less stressed because of these cognitive loads that are on my brain and I'm trying to be do creative work, but I can't do it if I'm working 80 hours and always in like level 11 of anxiety. Yeah. And and that really does go back to that, that less is more mentality. Sometimes the more you try to do, the less you actually get done. And one of the things she mentioned, you alluded to this briefly just now, Dan, that was a mantra I really tried to stick to in grad school as much as possible, but I don't think we talked about it explicitly last week, which she said to that she would try to work while she was at work. And I think that really is an important component because one thing I observed when I was in grad school, and I think I mentioned this on the last show, I didn't want to be there all the time. I didn't want to be in lab 12 hours a day, you know, that was a part of who I was, but that wasn't the totality of who I was. I had people I wanted to see and things I wanted to do outside of grad school, but I would see a lot of my peers who were really there all the time. You know, they'd be there when I get there in the morning, they'd be there in the evening, they'd be there on the weekends if I popped in. But one thing I realized about that was most of the time when I would see them there in the lab, it wasn't like they were glued to the bench doing experiments. You know, maybe they were hanging out or they were watching YouTube or they were doing all those things. And 
And I realized, okay, well, if I just come in, hit the ground running, I want to get done what I have to do because I do want to progress. I want to get out of here. I want to move on with my life. That's important to do, but also want to get out of here at a reasonable hour. So I think you really can do that if you just focus your time while you're at lab. And that probably happens a little more when you have the mindset that Elena's talking about where, all right, I'm not coming in. It's like grad school time, but like, oh, I'm going to work. Like, this is my job. So I'm at work now, so I'm going to do work now. And then likewise, when I go home, I'm at home. I wanted to hear you respond to that specific topic, Josh. And and really the uh, the core title of the show, I think, this week, which is the reasons that calling yourself and thinking yourself of as a graduate student are holding you back in a, in a number of different ways. Was that your experience? And, and did you see that in students you worked with? You know, grad school in the sciences, these PhD programs where you're doing research or working in the lab, they really are unique in a lot of ways. And there aren't good apples to apples comparisons for that in the workforce. So I think honestly, like in some ways, Grad school is not school. It's more like a job than it is school for many of the reasons you all discussed. You get paid. You know, you're not just, you know, like your grandma thinks you're going in, going to class every day, sitting in a lecture hall for seven years. You know, you're not doing that. I mean, you're, you're working, you're doing a job. But at the same time, there are some things that are different than a typical job. Like often it's a lot more, and these are some of the challenges sometimes, but also the opportunities it can be a lot more open-ended just in what your task is, <laughs> like what you're, like what's the thing you're there to do? Well, you know, you're not there to put cog A on spindle B, you know? Right, it's hard to measure your your progress because everybody's direction is slightly different. Yeah, yeah, you're there really to learn to be a scientist. You're there to think scientifically, you're there to move a project along and sometimes you're there to do that with little with very little supervision which you know as actually as I'm as I'm highlighting a lot of these things there's opportunity there but a lot of challenges some of these are flaws <laughs> yeah a lot of challenges that stress people out in grad school arise from that open-endedness that lack of oversight at times i wonder what would happen if the research advisors saw it as a job and saw it as a training experience. I, I think of it probably most closely to an apprenticeship. If I am an electrician's apprentice or a plumber's apprentice, I am doing the, the work day to day, but I am not fully skilled at it. But that doesn't mean that I'm not rewiring things. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, am, I am a worker. I'm just not necessarily qualified to do everything. And I'm, I'm hoping to get there. And hopefully there's a lot of oversight into how I'm doing it. And there is a plan of training and apprenti- in the apprenticeship so that I'm learning the right things at the right times. But I wonder if a, if a PI looked at graduate training as this apprenticeship type model, would they supply some of those missing pieces? Uh, a clearer <laughs> outcome, clearer goals, a clearer path to training. Well, I think a good mentor does that. I'm not, I'm not even saying most mentors do that. Uh, most advisors do that, but a good advisor will provide that mentorship. Just not the standard. You know, Dan, I think along those lines, that's one reason why we talk about all the time on the show. It's really important, I think, to prioritize that mentorship that you're going to get or not get when choosing an advisor, when thinking about where you want to work. Because if what Elena's talking about, what we've been talking about resonates with you, that you would like to work in an environment where there are, are clear goals, you're going to get support as you try to work towards those goals and help you if you get off track. So you're not just swimming aimlessly out into the ocean for several years. You know, if those are things you want, which I think many people would want, it's okay to ask about and share those expectations with potential advisors or talk to people who are in labs that you're thinking about joining to see what kind of guidance and mentorship they get while they're there. Um, Cause I think you can find these opportunities and it could be the difference between having a great experience or a terrible experience. Makes sense. Anyway, Dan, I thought this was really, really useful and insightful. I hope people got a lot out of it and, and helps them to reframe the work that they're doing and also the skills that they bring with them after graduation when it's time to transition into a career. 
Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll hear from Elena again in the future on some of the other topics we listed. But if you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear that too. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners to find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the shandy money. And thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan. Enjoyed podcasting with you today. Enjoyed sipping on this shandy on a warm summer day. Uh, I'm going to be down in North Carolina in a couple weeks, so maybe we can enjoy wine uh, face-to-face. I will look forward to it. Hopefully we can sit outside and uh, have something extremely cold swatting the mosquitoes as we do (laughs) we'll see you soon josh all right see you there